Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you and to be with you. Uh, we are in week two of our new series on the Holy Spirit, as was foreshadowed by uh, Scott and the children, and yeah, some good theology happening in our kids' ministry. So shout out to parents, shout out to the kids' workers who are uh, helping to plant that stuff um, in our dear children. And so um, the Holy Spirit is God. Holy Spirit takes care of us, is our friend, helps people. Yeah, it sort of sums up a good portion of at least the first half of what I want to share with you today. Um, Lance, of course, did a beautiful job opening things up last week. I encourage you to check out the uh, podcast if you haven't had a chance to do that already. Um, we are desiring to mature in our theology of the Holy Spirit. And one key aspect of our emphasis is to remember that good theology is necessarily practical. So our deep prayer is that our, as our understanding of the Spirit grows, so will our lived experience, that our understanding is not just up here, but it's in here, and it's in our hands and feet, and it, it becomes embodied as we seek to walk out this uh, lived theology. I remember um, at being at Regent and, and thinking that it was weird that there was a, a concentration called applied theology, because I thought there's no such thing as unapplied theology. The theology is ne necessarily always applied, and so that's, that's the perspective that we want to have as we engage this theme. So today in particular, I want to talk about the person of the Holy Spirit. So narrow topic, super easy to focus, um, should be no problem to just launch straight into because likely all of us, when I say the person of the Holy Spirit, immediately have an image that springs to mind. Uh, joking, of course. Um, but I want to ask you, how do we conceive of the Holy Spirit? What comes to mind? Does anything actually come to mind. How many of us have read William Paul Young's book, The Shack? Anyone among us? A handful? Anyone seen the movie? A few of us, maybe? Whether or not you've seen it, whether you read it, whether you care about it, whether you have an opinion on it or not, whether it's a strong opinion or not, doesn't matter for our purposes right now. One of the things I appreciate about The Shack is that it dared to challenge our imaginations in terms of how we conceive of God, and in particular, each person of the Trinity. So if A.W. Tozer is right when he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, then a film or a novel that boldly, creatively, artistically invites us to ask that question of ourselves is worth a look for that reason alone. When Mac, the story's central character, first meets the Trinity, he's not sure what to make of them. Here's a little section from the book. Thoughts tumbled over each other as Mac struggled to figure out what to do. Was one of these people God? Since there were three of them, maybe this was a trinity sort of thing. But two women and a man, and none of them white? Then again, why had he naturally assumed that God would be white? He knew his mind was rambling, so he focused on the one question he most wanted to answer. Then Max struggled to ask, which one of you is God? I am, said all three in unison. Mac looked from one to the next, and even though he couldn't begin to grasp what he was seeing and hearing, he somehow believed them. This is the film's depiction of the Holy Spirit character. Her name is Sarayu, or one of the words for wind in the language of Hindi, which, of course, is one of the most well-known biblical images of the Spirit, wind or breath. We talked about this last week. In the film, we see Sarayu as compassionate, as creative, as mysterious, and empowering, always in motion. And of course, these are characteristics we see all the time in connection with the Spirit's activity in Scripture. 
For me, the shack's portrayal helped deepen my understanding of the spirit as a person without diminishing or taking away anything from the other images that we find in the biblical narrative. I've got a long way to go, but in my personal applied theology, this has been one of the things that God has used to open me up to greater intimacy, to greater aliveness in my own journey of faith. I don't know what your experience has been, whether something did come to mind when I asked, what do we conceive of when we think of the Holy Spirit? But perhaps these words from Gordon Fee will resonate. For most of us, he says, our understanding of the Spirit falls considerably short of personhood. We have a certain immediate empathy with the student who once told a colleague of mine, God the Father makes perfectly good sense to me, and God the Son I can quite understand, but the Holy Spirit is a gray, oblong blur. The song we sang earlier, Holy, 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 here's how the line in the hymn doesn't go. God in two persons plus one sort of nebulous, esoteric, wispy pseudo-presence <laughs> is God in three persons, blessed trinity. Now, we sing these words, and it goes by maybe even without a thought, but I'd venture to say most of us live with a degree of what one writer called TDD, Trinity Deficit Disorder. And the person usually left out in many of our experiences is the Holy Spirit. So big reason that we're doing this series on the Spirit is that we want to move our understanding of the Holy Spirit well into the realm of personhood. Why? So that we can experience the Spirit as a personal, relational, and ongoing presence in our daily lives. Will you join me in prayer to that end? Holy Spirit, we, as much as we're able, open ourselves up this morning to that which you want to illuminate for us, that which you want to communicate to our minds and hearts and imaginations about who you are. We thank you for the many rich images that we find in Scripture about who you are. And we ask that um, by some mystery, by some divine wisdom, that you would make yourself known to us as a person in a fresh way this morning. Meet us where we are with whatever questions we're holding, with whatever confusion we bear, with whatever resistance we're experiencing. And would you penetrate and get to the core of who we are by your Holy Spirit. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So since this is a uh, topical series, this sermon in particular won't really be anchored down in a single text, but instead we're going to be framed by three questions, each of which will lead us to various places in Scripture. So the first question that we want to ask is, how do we know how do we know the, whole, the Holy Spirit is a person? And a good place to start might be to ask the same question of the other two members of the Trinity. How do we know the Father is a person? How do we know the Son is a person? We read the pages of Scripture and we find that the Bible defines a person as an entity that can do personal things, like speaking and thinking and feeling and acting and taking care of people and helping people, as our children were reminding us. Something that does these personal things in relationship, like God, angels, and human beings, is a person. And so the Father and Son, of course, both do all of these things. I think it's a pretty simple but fair criteria. So how does the Spirit stand up to it? Let's walk through a few examples of the Spirit being a person. All right, with me? Um, first of all, the, per the Spirit teaches and reminds. And now there's a number of Scripture references that are going to go up here, as well as their page numbers. So if you feel like 
doing sort of a mad rush through, through all of these different texts. They're all in relatively the same area, so feel free. Um, the page numbers will all be there. We won't read every text, but we'll read a number of them. So, the Spirit teaches and reminds. From John 14, 26, we read this. These are the words of Jesus. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Have you ever been in a situation where you're praying for someone and a verse pops into your head? Maybe an impression or an image. Or you've got a friend who is seeking wisdom or advice and a scriptural phrase comes to mind. Or maybe a story. That is what Jesus said the Spirit would do. That's the Spirit alive, active, and working in your midst. Teaches and reminds. The Spirit also speaks. In Acts 13, we read this. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting... The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. This little text, which represents, of course, a much bigger story in the book of Acts, is such a great reminder of how worship, as defined in the Bible, is meant to be two-way communication. Our hymns and songs aren't just monologues, but a sung response to, the God who is, who, to who God is and what God does. And sometimes the Spirit continues the dialogue right in the midst of our worshiping, by speaking to us, by giving us impressions while we're speaking to him. The Spirit makes decisions, Acts 15, 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. Really briefly, the context there was discerning what rituals to require of non-Jewish converts wanting to follow Christ. But in terms of Holy Spirit activity, there's a sense here of the Spirit offering wisdom and enabling agreement in situations where his people need discernment. And we can be confident that the Spirit still operates in that way uh, for us today. The Spirit can be grieved. Ephesians 4, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Gene Peterson's translation says, don't break his heart. His Holy Spirit moving and breathing in you is the most intimate part of your life, making you fit for himself. Don't take such a gift for granted. And we've all broken someone else's heart, probably to some degree, and had our own hearts broken. How often do you and I imagine the Holy Spirit having emotions like these? Or having emotions at all? It brings us into a whole different realm of our personhood. The Spirit, in similar vein, can be lied to. Acts 5, then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not just lied to human beings, but to God. Another reminder how God is, is active, is present in every circumstance in our lives and actually feels the weight of our actions. That's a pretty good indicator of personhood. Feels the weight of our actions. The Spirit also can prevent human speech and plans. Acts 16, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. You ever had a strong sense that God was preventing you from doing something? Yeah, some agreement. It's great. Maybe for your protection, physically, emotionally, spiritually. 
Now, has a close friend ever done the same? I think so. Parents do this, of course, for their children all the time. Now, I think the Holy Spirit, in addition to preventing us sometimes in more direct ways, an impression, a thought, a scripture, however it comes to us, that happens, but also often works through parents and our friends and the people who know us well and say, no, that would not be good for you. Let me keep you from doing this. The mentors in our lives. The Spirit searches everything and knows God's thoughts, 1 Corinthians 2. These are the things God has revealed to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Searches, knows, reveals. Apparently part of the Spirit's role at times is to be the conveyor of secrets only God knows. What an incredible mystery and what an incredible privilege. The Spirit hands out gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 All these, the gifts that have been listed, are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. One of uh, Richard Rohr's metaphors for the Holy Spirit is generosity of the Creator. The generosity of the Creator. And out of that generousness, we have each been given gifts, a portion of the divine DNA, we might say, as the Spirit sees fit. Why? To be empowered to join God in the renewal of all things. We can't do that without the power of the Spirit indwelling us, gifting us, making it possible. The Spirit helps us, prays for us, has a mind. So I've sort of grouped a few together. This is Romans 8. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. I love the story Lance told last week about a couple with kids who agreed to ask each other whenever they arrived at home, how can I help? This is paraclete. This is, this is how a picture, uh, this is a picture of the Spirit operating in this way, leaning in, being for and toward, coming alongside. I should add, however, that the word paraclete can mean prosecuting counsel, defending counsel, or friend. So what might actually be helpful, an even richer picture might be to think of a friend who is close enough and loves you enough to call you on your stuff, knowing that it's only after our stuff gets exposed that it can be put right. So writing about the Holy Spirit in this vein, one person said, it is part of the paraclete's comfort and encouragement to dispel illusion, but to love still. I like that image. Enriches also, much like a person. The Spirit confirms our true identity. Romans 8 The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. What a comfort that is. And the verses prior to this make it clear that life in the Spirit isn't about a journey into fear. Nor does the Spirit we've been given have anything to do with enslavement. It's just the opposite. It's about adoption into God's family. We are God's beloved. Pablo Picasso, of all people, got close to the heart of belovedness with these words. Each second we live is a new and unique moment of the universe, a moment that will never be again. And what do we teach our children? We teach them that two and two make four and that Paris is the capital of France. When will we also teach them what they are? We should say to each of them, do you know what you are? You are a marvel. 
you are unique. In all the years that have passed, there has never been another child like you. That gets close to the heart of what it means to be the beloved of God. We should say that to each other as well, not just our children. You're a marvel. You are unique. In the years that have passed, there's been and never been another one like you. One of the Spirit's main jobs is to keep whispering to the center of our being, don't forget, you are God's beloved daughter. You are God's beloved son. The Spirit also confirms everything about Christ. John 15. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. Here's Trinitarian theology at its best. The three are totally united in their agency on our behalf. So this has been, uh, it's not an exhaustive list, it's been a quick run through, but it shows some of the primary ways that we can look for the Spirit's activity in Scripture so that we too can come to understand and appreciate and experience the Spirit in the present. It's a list of verbs, mainly. Some are modified by attitudes and motivations, and you can tell, of course, a lot about a person by their actions. But I want to press into the personhood aspect a bit more by asking a second question. Just deepens it a bit. What is the Holy Spirit really like? Anytime you and I get to know people as persons, there's a progression. We usually get to know what they look like first, maybe their name, what they do for work, where they live, and eventually get to know the real them as much as they will permit it or as much as we will engage it, including their personality. So if the Holy Spirit is a person, which I trust we can affirm together even from what we've been looking at so far, then it makes sense the Holy Spirit would have a personality. So what's the Holy Spirit's personality? What would the Holy Spirit be on the Myers-Briggs? What would the Holy Spirit be on the Enneagram? Spoiler alert, he would be all the best of all nine parts of the Enneagram and none of the deadly sin part. So, but it kind of breaks down because we can't confine the Holy Spirit to a type, so sorry for asking the question at all in the first place. What is the Holy Spirit's personality? Let's, let's see if we can get anything close to an answer from some of the other biblical images. We already mentioned wind and breath. Linked with those are the image of the Holy Spirit as a bird. The Spirit first appears in Scripture, in Genesis 1, hovering over the waters of creation, just as a bird might. The first appearance of the Spirit in Mark's Gospel is at Jesus' baptism, where all the Gospel writers agree that the Spirit descended like a dove. Now, what I find interesting is that a dove has actually very little to do with peace, as is sometimes interpreted. The one on whom the Spirit rests for a brief moment is about to be driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After that, he will be plunged into a life of ministry that will be marked by conflict and controversy. This too is love. Now, for many centuries, Celtic Christians have thought of the wild goose as a symbol for the Holy Spirit. A number of years ago, I got to visit the Iona community in Scotland. This is the place where Christianity is rumored to have first entered Scotland. And there I heard John Bell, a minister and one of the first members of, or one of the members of the Iona community, explain, the wild goose is a perfectly appropriate metaphor for the Holy Spirit, because what else does the Spirit do but fly in? do his business, and leave us to take care of the mess. <laughs> Pretty much nailed the accent, I think. Now, I wonder if that image would ring a little more true, even for Jesus, than the peaceful dove most of, image that most of us have grown up with. is isn't to say it has nothing to do with peace. Of course it does. But it's more nuanced than that. 
John's gospel says of the Spirit in chapter 3, verse 8, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from, where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Bono once wrote, the Spirit is described in the Holy Scriptures as much more anarchic than any established religion credits. You two's playing in town this week, so I had to throw in a Bono quote. There is certainly a wildness. There is a holy unpredictability in the images of wind, breath, dove, and wild goose. How else can we get a sense of the Spirit's personality? Now, there are a bunch of scriptural Holy Spirit images that are rather impersonal, so it makes this a challenging question. Anointing oil, water, first fruits, down payment, what's personal about those? What about flame and fire? What might those images hold for us? Well, in Acts 2 at Pentecost, we read of tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of the disciples. If you ever do a Google image search for the tongues of fire, there's some pretty amazing slash horrible religious art around that particular image. Just saying, I decided to like to refrain from offering some of those. But just imagine the scene. I think our imaginations are better than a lot of the things I saw. So like the image of wind, the tongues of fire suggest that a divine power is now invading the gathered community in Jerusalem. One writer spoke of the Holy Spirit's activity in this way. Fire both melts and dissolves the boundaries between relationships so we can stop hiding behind our names, our labels, our definitions, and descriptions. Another word for this consuming fire is, of course, love. These images help us, I think, dig a little deeper into the Spirit's personality. But I wonder if what would help more is to consider what the New Testament writers have always understood, that the Spirit is like Jesus. Indeed, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. Paul Pastor, awesome name for pastoral quotes, says, while we may lack the language to describe the person of the Spirit accurately or to speak of his specific work, he is the member of the Trinity most intimately involved with every turning of our life and world. He is our intercessor who groans, the Apostle Paul said, for the church before the Father with words unutterable. The Spirit of Jesus, as Acts calls him, filled our inmost selves when we were born again. The vital, invisible, spiritually tangible works of baptism, filling, sealing, and sanctification, they are all through the activity of the Spirit applying the life of the resurrected Christ by the will and power of the Father to our lives. He is the personal love of the triune God made most intimate for his people. There's a lot there. And if that's true, it explains perhaps why it's so hard, maybe even impossible, and probably foolish to say anything comprehensive about the person or the personality of the Spirit without talking about the rest of the Trinity. Many of us have likely seen this piece of art before. It goes by two names. The first name that was given was the hospitality of Abraham, and it's a reference to the story in Genesis 18 where God appeared to Abraham in the form of what is thought to be three angels or perhaps something more, hence the second name, the Trinity. Now, this, of course, is not mere religious art, and that's important to know since self-consciously religious art so often tries too hard and becomes little more than cheap sentiment. But the particular artistic mode that the Trinity belongs to is an icon. An icon is meant to point beyond itself. An icon invites the viewer not only to look at, but to look through, 
like a window, toward the deeper reality that it is pointing at. So in this case, it is inviting us to a sense of both what is beyond as well as the communion that already exists. This was created by Russian iconographer Andrei Rublev in the 15th century. And the Trinity is really the icon of icons for many. The original is still on display at a gallery in Moscow. There's actually a story about one artist uh, becoming a follower of Jesus just by gazing at this icon. Apparently, he exclaimed, if that's the nature of God, then I'm a believer. One writer helps us experience the icon in a deeper way by offering a few comments. In Rublev's icon, there are three primary colors which illustrate facets of the Holy One, all contained in the three. Rublev considered gold on the left, the color of the Father, perfection, fullness, wholeness, the ultimate source. He considered blue the color of the human, both sea and sky mirroring one another, and therefore God in Christ taking on the world, taking on humanity. Thus, Rublev pictures the Christ in blue, displaying his two fingers to tell us that he has put spirit and matter, divinity and humanity together within himself and for us. And then there's green, easily representative of the spirit. Hildegard of Bingen, the German Benedictine abbess, composer, writer, philosopher, mystic, and overall visionary, living three centuries before Rublev, called the spirits endless fertility and fecundity veriditas. Veriditas, a quality of divine aliveness that makes everything blossom and bloom in endless shades of green. Incidentally, I love that Sarayu, the shack's depiction of the spirit, was a gardener. Rublev, in similar reverence for the natural world, chose green to represent, as it were, the divine photosynthesis that grows everything from within by transforming light into itself. This is precisely the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy One in the form of the three, eating and drinking, and infinite hospitality and utter enjoyment between themselves. If we take the depiction of God in the Trinity seriously, we have to say, in the beginning was the relationship. What is the Holy Spirit's personality? Spirit's like Jesus, and the Spirit is like the Father. Paul Pastor, again, said God's Spirit is a constant revealer of himself, of the Father and of the Son. Constant revealer. I want to share some more art with you, since getting to know the Spirit as a person, I think, demands that we engage our imaginations. This time, a poem from Lucy Shaw. It's called Wind Ghostly. I think often about the invisible God, doubly covert. I mean, now and again, Father and Son made their appearances, speaking in thunder, blood, or salvation. But the third person is like a ghost. Sometimes he silvers for a moment, a moon sliver between moving leaves. We aren't sure. What to make of this? How are we meant to see him? As energy hovering, bird-like over chaos, breeding it into ferns and whales? Blessing the scalps of the righteous with the pungency of oil, bleeding the hard edge of warning into all those prophet voices, etching Ezekiel's view with oddities, eyes in wheels spinning like astrolabes, crowding Mary's womb to seed its dark clay, wising up fools to improbable truth, filling us like wine bottles, bursting from our mouths in champagne gasps of surprise, this for sure. He finds enough masks to keep us guessing. Is it really you? Is this you also? 
It's a cracked crossover world waiting for bridges. He chooses a shape, fire, dove, wind, water, oil. Notice in him oil and water mix. Closes the breach in figures that flicker within the closed eye, tongue the brain, sting and tutor the soul. Once incarnate in Judea, now he is present in us in the present tense, occupying our bodies, shapes to be reshaped, houses for this Holy Ghost. In our special flesh, he thrives into something too frequent to deny and too real to see. This is what the triune God is like. Always revealing, always creating, always coming close. Like Jesus, the Holy Spirit desires to make his home in us. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood and the Holy Spirit seeks to indwell in the same, in the same way and to transform us. We are indeed, as Lucy, Lucy Shaw puts it, shapes to be reshaped. And like Jesus, the Spirit also wants to be personed or incarnated in the world through us. And when this happens, as we welcome and open ourselves up to the Spirit of Christ, we begin to take on the personality of the Spirit ourselves. What would that be like? And again, our goal in this series, I want to remind us, is for a practical, applied theology of the Holy Spirit, a growing understanding that results in lived experience. So the third question, how do we experience the Spirit as a person? How do we come to know and to be known by the Spirit of Christ? Well, some good news. This is a friendship where the spirit of God, the primary initiative, actually lies on God's side. And God the spirit has already made the first move. The spirit has been poured out. The spirit has called us his beloved, has filled us, has descended like a consuming fire, has gifted and anointed us to love and to serve in his name. God's spirit has done and continues to live and act this way even among us. So our primary task, I think, is to welcome the Spirit with open hands. Welcome the Spirit with open hands. Extend hospitality like you would a close friend. So good to see you. One of the ways we can do this practically is to pay attention to where and how he is present in Scripture. I was taking you a little, on a bit of a tour through some of the things that the Holy Spirit does earlier, but you can read through the Gospels, read the book of Acts, read the letters of Paul, and I would remind us as well, ask, ask for the Spirit for help in this, or ask for the Spirit's help in this, to illuminate Scripture for you, and particularly the words of Jesus. This is one of the things he promised to do, right? Jesus said it himself, the Holy Spirit, when he comes to you, he will remind you. He will remind you of everything that I've said to you. But still, it's hard to be reminded of something that you've never heard to begin with. So that's why it's so important that we need some kind of consistent rhythm of engaging with Scripture. I think another invitation is to listen to your own life. Look for evidence of the Spirit breezing and blowing through your own daily experience. Where are you noticing the same kind of activity we see in Scripture? Where is He filling you? Where is He calling you beloved? Where is He inviting you to risk? Where is He preventing you from some harmful course of action? Where is He purifying you? Where is he surprising you? Where is he weeping with you? And this kind of noticing, of course, doesn't just happen. It requires some time, some effort, some stillness, uh, 
some space in your calendar to slow down, to reflect. It doesn't have to be a lot. We mentioned a number of times the Ignatian examine as a practice, and I offer it to you again, a daily practice listening to your life, simply asking, what was the high point of my day? When did I feel most alive? If I could relive one moment today of today, what would it be? And offer gratitude to God for this. On the other side, what was the low point? Where did I feel like life was being drained from me? Where did I feel least alive? If I could trade in one moment and not relive it ever again, what would it be? And just offer it, notice it, be with it. As you are, it may in fact turn into gratitude eventually as you recognize what God's deeper purpose might be. Listen to your own life. Also, be the church, don't go to church. In other words... Practice seeing yourselves as part of this new humanity that the Spirit has been sent to be the center of. C.S. Lewis writes, God can show himself as God really is only to real people. And that means not simply to people who are individually good, but to people who are united together in a body, loving one another, helping one another, showing God to one another. For that is what God meant humanity to be like, like players in one band or organs in one body. Consequently, the only real adequate instrument for learning about God is the whole Christian community waiting for God together. So suggest something that's kind of radical, but kind of simple, that we challenge each other to stop asking, are you going to church this Sunday? And saying, I'm going to church or I'm not going to church. And instead, if you're asking someone about Sunday worship, say, are you going to be at the gathering on Sunday? The gathering of our church on Sunday. Yes, I'll be at the gathering this Sunday. It's a small shift in language, but try it and see if it doesn't tweak something. In your, why am I saying this again? Oh, right, because we don't go to church. We are the church. It's huge implications for how we see ourselves, how we see others, how we understand it, and anticipate or don't the Spirit's presence among us. It really is the difference between being a spectator and a participant. It's the difference, I like to say, maybe between actually being a drummer versus merely owning multiple sets of sticks. <laughs> so a few invitations. And in all of this, we could summarize by saying, just be prepared to change. Be prepared to change. Recognize that no one who encountered Jesus ever stayed the same. And the Spirit, guess what? Just keeps carrying that narrative forward. No one who encounters the Spirit ever stays the same either. As we've seen, hopefully, the spirit is not like a benign yet annoying skin lesion. It isn't wanting to just sort of remain vague and inert in our understanding. The spirit of the living God wants to move into our bodies as a person moves into a house, to turn it into a home, to indwell us as shapes to be reshaped. Before I invite you to the table, I want to end by engaging in a spiritual practice together with you. We are steeped in a rich tradition of praying the names of God, names, of course, which are reflective of the deeper character of who God is. It started with the psalmists and continued on with the New Testament writers. And Richard Rohr has written something called a litany of the spirit. It contains fresh, rich, poetic, scripturally resonant images, uh, language for the Holy Spirit. And I've made about 75 copies of this, at, and they'll be at the info desk on your way out if you would like to have a copy. Also, on the flip side of that is the poem that I shared earlier by Lucy Shaw. 
and a small representation of the Rublev icon. So a little bit of art to take home with you uh, today. Maybe it's especially appropriate because we didn't have a handout today uh, otherwise, but uh, something to take with you and hopefully remember a little bit about the personhood of the Holy Spirit and an invitation to engage it in spiritual practice. So I'm going to invite us actually to stand, and uh, I want to read this litany. It won't be posted, um, so maybe you want to uh, close your eyes. If it's better to remain seated, that's your call. But I uh, invite you to, if you would like to, in a spirit of receptivity. Here's what Richard Rohr says about this. He says, when I did a hermitage in the Lent season of 2006 in Arizona, I had an enduring sense of the presence and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, one that I think is fully available to all of us if we but knew the gift of God. John 4, verse 10, I slowly compose this prayer litany to awaken and strengthen this presence within you. Recite it whenever you are losing faith in God or in yourself. Pure gift of God. Indwelling presence. Promise of the Father. Life of Jesus. Pledge and guarantee. Eternal praise. Defense attorney. Inner anointing. Reminder of the mystery. Homing device. Knower of all things. Stable witness. Implanted pacemaker. Overcomer of the gap. Always already awareness. Compassionate observer. Magnetic center. God compass. Inner breath. Divine DNA. Mutual yearning place. Given glory. Hidden love of God. Choiceless awareness. Implanted hope. Seething desire. Fire of life and love. Sacred peacemaker. Nonviolence of God. Seal of the incarnation. First fruits of everything. Father and mother of orphans. Planted law. Truth speaker. God's secret plan. Great bridge builder. Warmer of hearts. Space between everything. Flowing stream. Wind of change. Descending dove, cloud of unknowing, uncreated grace, filled emptiness, through seer, deepest level of our longing, attentive heart, sacred wounding, holy healing, Softener of our spirit. Will of God. Great compassion. Generosity of the creator. 
inherent victory. The one sadness. Our shared joy. God's tears. God's happiness. The welcoming within. New and eternal covenant. Contract written on our hearts. Jealous lover. Desiring of God. I pray this to you who pray in us, through us, with us, for us, and in spite of us. Amen. Hallelujah. I invite you to sit and let's come to the table.